Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Mike Sakopoulos and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. One of the hallmarks of practicing medicine in the 21st century is the creation and maintenance of electronic health data. Although much of the discussion around this data involves ransomware, breaches, and EHR systems, that discussion is expanding. The Office of Civil Rights is in the midst of a right of access initiative to help patients get their medical records. The Cures Act addresses information blocking. This marks a change of focus of rules from protection of medical data to the use and accessibility of that data. In this episode of Sound Practice, we will examine how the Cures Act will impact medicine in years to come. This is an important topic that deserves your attention. So let's begin. My guest today is Devin McGraw. She is currently the Chief Regulatory Officer for Citizens. Devin is an attorney and also holds a master's in public health. She has served as the Deputy Director for Health Information Privacy at the Office of Civil Rights. She has been Chief Privacy Officer of the National Coordinator for Health IT, as well as worked with the Federal All of Us Research Initiative on HIPAA and Patient Donated Data Research Initiatives. Devin McGraw, welcome to Sound Practice. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So pleased to to have you, and we're very fortunate to have someone with with your great experience and background in in patient uh, privacy join us. Let's first start with the day job. Can you go into detail about citizens and your role there? Sure. So we are a platform that enables patients to be able to gather all their medical records from all the places where they've been seen. And then they can share those medical records um, in ways that uh, can help them. So they can share it with a caregiver. They can share it with another physician. They can share it uh, with a research initiative that they care about. And and we are focusing on patients who are really sick. We started with cancer patients. Our founder lost his little sister to metastatic breast cancer Mm. several years ago. And so cancer was where we started, but we've also recently um, uh, migrated also to rare neurological conditions. So these are patients who really actually care a lot about having all their records and where the need for information is really critical, both for the patient and for anybody who is caring for them, whether that's in a personal or a professional capacity. And, and my role there is to, well, I mean, I wear a lot of hats, um, but I primarily work on our data governance issues. Um, you know, how do we govern information? How do we put data in control of, in the control of the patient? How do we um, take advantage of opportunities to help our patients get their data more easily. So that's what I do. Important, important work, especially for that type of patient population. For those of our audience out there that, that don't know, can you give us a general overview of what information blocking is? Maybe go into detail about how this topic came about and give an example or two of that as it would relate to a healthcare provider. Yeah, sure. So information blocking is a set of regulations that came out of the 21st Century Cures Act, which is enacted by Congress several years ago. Um, And essentially what the information blocking rules say 
is that you can be penalized if you fail to share electronic health information in circumstances where that sharing is permitted by law. And the failure to share also um, includes interfering with or making it harder for this information to be able to be accessed for lawful purposes. And I think one of the reasons why this is such an anathema, I think, to a lot of physicians is that they have been schooled in their HIPAA training to not share information, except in circumstances where the patient has authorized it or in circumstances where it's treatment or for payment or for healthcare operations. Like, you know, we have just really drummed into people's heads that sharing is bad and should be avoided unless you have a clear legal reason to do so and a, and, and a clear need to do so. Essentially what the information blocking will say is sharing is good, except in those circumstances where you're not allowed. And so it really flips the, the question. And it means that when, when a healthcare professional gets a request, frankly, from anybody for electronic health information, it only applies to digital health information. It does not apply to paper. Um, and actually for the first two years of the law going into effect, which just went into effect in April, um, the data that is covered by the information black rules is limited to what's called the US core data set for interoperability or the US CDI, um, which you can find you know, references to um, online if you have any questions about what's included. So it's a lot of data, but it's not everything. It's not everything in the medical record. And again, it's limited to digital data, but, the, but, the, but if you get a request for data that's in the US CDI, that is EHI, you actually have to consider honoring it, you know, providing the data, as long as it is, it is lawful for you to provide that data. If, it, if it's a permitted disclosure, or if you've got the authorization of the patient to disclose it, then you, you really need to disclose unless your reason for not disclosing um, is a valid one. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it flips things for, for professionals. It's, it is a new era of data sharing where, where, where it's data sharing good as long as it's lawful. And what would be an example of the type of request that would fall within this, this category of, of needing to, to be shared under the Cures Act? Sure. So a treatment request from a fellow physician from another, from another hospital, um, you know, patients getting a second opinion needs their data. I mean, this is a circumstance where in most cases, the data are shared, but sometimes they're not shared easily. Sometimes they're shared with obstacles. Sometimes they're, um, and sometimes competitors, you know, with, with that are, you know, close neighbors, competitor institutions, competitor physicians, there's a reluctance to share that data. There's a, there's a nervousness that that data is going to be somehow turned around and used by that competitor institution to harm the other one. And so sometimes that data hasn't flowed very easily, but, but under information blocking, it would need to. You know, you can't take anti-competitive concerns and factor them into your decision-making about sharing. Another example is when a patient wants to access their information. Again, HIPAA has always said, this is a required disclosure, but it hasn't always been easy for patients to exercise. So to the extent that your processes for releasing data to patients are, what I like to say, kludgy, difficult, takes, takes too much time, 
um, then you're going to have to rethink those because now the, you know, making things harder provide, you know, requiring special effort on the part of patients to get their data is potentially an information blocking rule violation. Another common scenario is health plans. Often providers are very reluctant to give health plans more information um, than they think the health plan needs to process a claim. The health plans, many of them feel they now have a, a wedge in the information blocking rule provisions to say, no, I need more information. Um, and so now the providers are going to have to, you know, make decisions about whether, you know, what information is to be shared because it just puts a thumb on the scale of sharing. It doesn't mean necessarily that you have to share the entire medical record if it's not warranted. The examples that you gave were, were very helpful, but were about an individual right. patient's records. What about in a request in the aggregate? Would that fall under it? Let's say I'm doing, um, I, I'm a PhD student and I'm looking for some data for my dissertation. Uh, and I'm looking for maybe some de-identified larger groups of data. Would that come under this? Well, it wouldn't because de-identified data is not covered by the okay. by the law. I mean, I don't believe it is. It, 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 again, information blocking is about EHI, which is electronic health information, which is identifiable to a patient. And um, again, if it's in the US CDI for the first two years of the, of the rule. So it doesn't cover de-identified data. Plus de-identifying data is it takes, a, takes work and processing. And I, you know, the law does not necessarily require you to you know, do that processing in, you know, in order to release that data to another individual. And if you were asking for identifiable information as your PhD dissertation, then what a, what a medical professional would need to think about is, okay, does, do, do, does the law allow me to disclose this information to this PhD candidate? And more often than not, there's not a HIPAA permission around you know, giving data to, to PhD candidates. So you'd probably need the authorization of the patients and it would be your responsibility as, a, as the PhD candidate to go get that authorization and present it to the medical professional. Now, in the research context, I actually think that this is an, a very interesting use case because research under HIPAA is allowed to be done with fully identifiable information, either with a patient's authorization or you can get that authorization waived by an institutional review board or a privacy board. And I can certainly see a researcher coming to a, to a healthcare institution or a medical practice and saying, or a clinic and saying, hey, I want all this data. I need a lot of data. It's all EHI. It's all in the US CDI. Oh, and by the way, here's my IRB waiver. So we don't need the authorization. So now I meet all the HIPAA permitted disclosures. And so now you have to think as a medical professional, okay, are, is there, I'm gonna need to disclose this in order to avoid an implication of being, of information blocking, unless, my, the, you know, one of the seven exemptions that's available under the rule applies here. So like it's an infeasible request or it might cause harm. The harm is a tougher exception to make, but, but you see, it's not, it's not, you know, you, you have to understand your obligations to, to think about whether that information should be shared 
but there are reasons why you might need to say no. And in addition to, you know, the legal ask, you know, the issues of whether the law allows you to disclose it, you also have to think about whether might maybe there's an exemption that might apply. So is this a full employment plan for the healthcare bar? <laughs> just just like HIPAA was, you know, <laughs> trying to keep the lawyers in business. I, I mean, it's Fair not enough. intended to be, but but especially in the early years of, of a new regulatory regime, there's just a lot of questions that come up and counsel can, of course, be helpful. Uh, we will get to the point, just as we did with HIPAA, where you know, entities don't necessarily always need to consult a lawyer. They've got processes and procedures in place and they can just follow those processes and not always have to get help. <laughs> but I, I think that that's, that's correct. And, and, and you're headed the, the right direction, but in the, the interim or the, the, the short term, what do you see as major obstacles or problems that healthcare providers are going to face when trying to comply with the Cures Act? I think, I think the, because the law is new, the uncertainty um, around, you know, the circumstances by which, you know, this law is going to be triggered and the fact that it can be triggered by any request from any person, as opposed to applying narrowly to just certain types of requests or requests from certain types of entities like or persons like individuals or other doctors or hospitals. And it just is, it's very, very broad in its application. And it's, it's, it's a, what triggers an information blocking violation is not black and white. It's very much a facts and circumstances test. And again, because we've spent decades now sort of counseling providers that sharing is dangerous and they should only do so in narrow circumstances, um, we, we're, you know, this is culture change, right? You know, sharing is a is a net positive as long as it's legally allowed. And how do you sort of prepare yourself and your staff to to sort of get accustomed to putting all requests through some sort of process where they are seriously considered as yes, not or maybe at least. When we left off, we were talking about the long-term familiarity with this law. As time goes on, people will become more familiar and it will become smoother, hopefully. Uh, and I think that your example of HIPAA was a was a, a great one. I'm interested in your thoughts on ownership of, of medical uh, records. State law governs much of this area, as does, as does federal law. Is it time for the federal government to completely assume control over all things medical records? It sure would cut down on a lot of confusion and what sometimes can be obstacles to, to sort of more seamless sharing of information across state boundaries because, you know, one state requires, you know, consent for certain types of information to be shared and another one doesn't. And, um, you know, from a, from the perspective of a company that, that needs to operate nationally, it sure would be helpful if there was just the federal set of laws. But it doesn't mean that the federal laws don't, you know, also create some hiccups um, or some uncertainties around sharing. If you think about the federal substance abuse treatment rules under part two, those are have historically been quite 
um, rigid in terms of the circumstances under which data that that potentially identifies that person as a as someone who's receiving substance abuse treatment, um, whether that can be shared or not, and for good reason, because if you know if that data isn't subject to heightened protection, we might not people might not go in for substance abuse treatment because they want to keep that very confidential. So at any rate, I, I, I personally think that federalizing medical record law would be enormously helpful. I'm, I'm not sure that everyone is going to agree with that. And, and you know, there are states that feel quite um, uh, devoted to their <laughs> privacy laws and would fight that. I mean, we're having that, that debate right now with respect to, you know, can we pass a general privacy law that covers other data? Um, and do we preempt state law when we do that? And there is a lot of, of desire for that to happen, but it has to be a strong enough law to justify getting rid of the, the state laws. So, and, and frankly, I think, you know, ownership is often the way that this is, that this issue comes up. But ownership really, who owns the record is really not as relevant as, you know, what are the laws that govern what you can do with that data, right? Because even if a state law says, for example, that the medical professional owns the record, it's still going to be subject to the patient's right of access. It's still going to be subject to these laws, including information blocking, that require the information to be shared in certain circumstances. Regarding the, the sharing of, of patient data and, and records, there's still some discretion left to a healthcare entity under the Cures Act, is there not? No, absolutely. Absolutely there is. It's just, you now have to have um, a valid reason for not sharing that you might have to actually defend before a regulator, as opposed to just deciding you just don't feel like it or you don't want to or you have anti-competitive or business concerns about what that entity will do with the data, unless you can document that threat. Um, like, you know, this is an institution that's constantly um, running ads about us, about how their procedures are better than ours. And if we give them this bulk data that they've requested, we're basically opening up the door to more of that anti-competitive behavior on their part. And, you know, but you'd have to document that, right? As opposed to just general angst, or we don't have the staff to process that, that request is not going to fly as much as it might, you know, before nobody, HIPAA never required you to share data except with the patient and with the federal government. You know, this law says, again, puts the thumb on the scale of share, doesn't mean you can't push it back, but you, you have to have a good reason for doing so. And whether that's a legal um, requirement that you have to meet a state law requirement or a commitment that you've made to patients that you won't share data. Um, you know, the domestic violence community is very worried that, that, that data is not gonna be as protected. And frankly, there is nothing that requires a, in this law that requires data to be shared um, in a situation where abuse might be triggered, there is an exception for that. So, so yes, discretion still exists, absolutely. And, and providers are still, uh, medical providers, medical professionals are still as very important um, gatekeepers for information. You, you mentioned one excuse or, or reason not to uh, 
produced that would not work is a lack of, of staff, which makes me think there, there are no dollars that flow with this to healthcare providers for compliance, are there? No, there are none. Now, there is, there is a, uh, an exception called infeasibility. So certainly if the type of request that you're getting um, requires, you know, the hiring of staff or the addition of new technology, you don't, you mean, again, it's, it's facts and circumstances triggered. You just need to document why you've said no. Um, again, that, that, that decision that you make is going to be subject to some scrutiny. Um, but if, it, it, I mean, I personally don't think that the way that this law is going to be enforced is, is to um, question reasonable and good judgment as opposed to, you know, again, the reason why this law was passed is because there, you know, there were reports, the government issued a report in 2015, the information blocking report, where they found instances where information wasn't shared when it should have been, even for, for treatment purposes. And they, and so Congress passed this law. Now, now something I didn't mention at the top of the call that's important is there's a, um, there's an intent element to being found to be information blocking. You have to know, if you're a medical professional or a hospital or an institution, you have to know that the, that, that the action that you're taking or that you're failing to take is you know, blocking or interfering with the sharing of information that otherwise would be lawful. So that's, that's, that's a high bar. That's, you know, that's in, in, you know, for those of us in the, in the legal profession, that's mens rea. You have to, you have to prove intent. So, so really I think that, and, and the regulators are the ones that are going to have to, to prove that if in, in, in a regulatory action. So, so that's, I mean, I think that's something to, to, to sort of think about is that while this changes the dynamic of information sharing pretty considerably, again, there's still a lot of discretion on the part of providers and, um, you know, you just need, you need to have a good reason and a good reason meaning it's going to stand up to, to objective scrutiny. Let's talk a little bit about things from a patient's perspective. Yeah. Um, certainly their desire of many people out there to have interoperability of, of their, their health care data with their apps on smartphones. Is this, are, are we a long way away from it being a really meaningful option to people? Well, we're not as far away as we used to be, that's for sure. Um, you know, what's interesting about these information blocking rules is that they apply to electronic health information, but not just to portals and certified electronic medical records. So, you know, there, there are a separate set of provisions that um, the medical record vendors have to put into place to make more and more data available through portals and what are called APIs or application programming interfaces, you know, those, those laws haven't fully taken effect yet. We're sort of towards the end of 2022 before the vendors have requirements to meet to have those capabilities rolled out to all of their customers across the country. Um, but I think that that is, is definitely where the federal government is aiming is more and more data that's available through sort of automatic EMR connections. And in another five to 10 years, which might still feel like a long time, but is not really that far away, 
there the amount of data that patients are going to get be able to get through easy connections is going to be greatly increased from what it is today. You know, I I have a portal into my healthcare provider and it gives me my labs and my meds and summary of my latest visit, but it doesn't have my images in there and it doesn't it didn't actually have the results of my latest mammogram even though they were normal. They mailed those to me. I still don't know why. <laughs> Very odd, right? Right, but the combination of the information blocking rules and other financial incentives from CMS on medical providers to make more and more of that data available through portals, and then the portal capability increases, we're, we're going to get there. It's just, it's it's slower than than those of us on the patient side would like, um, but it's 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 getting, it, the, the, the nirvana that we have sought for many years is in sight. <laughs> <laughs> and do you know of any studies of, of patients' reaction to being able to control their own or, or have possession of their own medical data? Because I know that there are studies out there that show patients withhold information from others because they're worried that yes. it will not be kept uh, safely. Are they more comfortable when it's in their own possession? Yes. No, they are. Um, the, the surveys of patients who have access to their medical records, they're, they're very pleased. They also like the other functionalities that they get from portals, often like scheduling um, and emailing with their, with their medical professional. Um, the Open Notes program um, has also done a lot of surveys of both medical providers and patients in terms of making notes more available to patients. Those have always been covered by the HIPAA right of access, but have historically been hard for patients to access. And so more and more of those notes are going to be available through portals. And so patients, it actually is a net positive, although it's sometimes hard for medical professionals worry, I think, about patients getting the wrong impression or not fully understanding the data. Um, but they tend to understand more than they're given credit for. Often, you know, sick patients do a lot of their own research, um, you know, they reach out to other patient communities. They they get they get educated, many of them, or a caregiver does on the patient's behalf. And having that data gives them agency. It allows them to pursue things and not be so dependent um, on their physician. And I think that there are some wonderful studies out there that show the more engaged a patient is in his or her own health care, the better they tend to do. Yes. Um, so from that perspective, maybe we can think happy thoughts that this all helps patients uh, have overall better healthcare experiences and results. Yes. I mean, I'd be willing to bet money that the upsides outweigh the downsides for, for every medical provider. It doesn't, medical professional healthcare provider. It doesn't, we, I mean, it's not to say that there won't be some, some hiccups, um, in terms of, you know, patients not, some patients not understanding the information or being upset by something that they see in the information, in, in the data that they're getting. But, but by and large, I think it's an, it is a net positive. Um, One of your former employers, the Office of Civil Rights, has been very active recently enforcing patient access to their medical uh, records, really over the last year and a half. We've seen uh, approximately 20 different actions, at least that were, were published. We may assume that there were some that we don't, we don't know about. And, and some of these that were published really had egregious facts associated um, uh, with them uh, from providers' 
point of view that, that had the provider had acted in a very poor way uh, to, to the patient and providing access to, to records. What do you think physician leaders need to know about the Office of Civil Rights Access Initiative? Well, I think what physician leaders need to know about the access initiative is that that OCR is taking the HIPAA right of access very seriously um, and that, you know, you need to have processes in your office or in your institution that get patients their medical records, their complete records, everything that's in what's called the designated record set, which is everything used to make decisions about individuals. So not just whatever is in the EMR, it also includes paper. It doesn't matter if it's stored offsite, like to, to make sure that those processes are, are seamless and in compliance with the rule. And that's, you know, that has not been, um, you know, some egregious facts is right with some of these cases, months and months and months. And, and what was most surprising to me is that OCR investigated these cases told the medical professionals, yes, this is subject to the right of access, you need to disclose it to the patient. And then they still didn't respond to the patient's request, which then resulted in a financial settlement. Those are all published. The, what, what you learn about online is any time that OCR has taken the case to the point where they would, they would issue a civil monetary penalty if there was resistance, usually there's there's settlements involved and then corrective action plans that the that the healthcare professional must follow. Um, you know, you could they could in almost every single one of those cases, those those settlements and corrective action plans could have been avoided if they had listened to o, the first call from OCR and 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 provided those records. So it's just it's mind boggling to me why you would get counseled by a regulatory, the regulatory agency to, to do something and then just dot and just not do it. <laughs> it, it is. I agree. Just flat out dumbfounding. Um, when you get the letter from the regulator saying you need to do something and uh, it's igno ignored on a wholesale basis. What's is we wrap up here. Evan, I'm interested in what you think we're going to see is as a healthcare community, both from the healthcare provider and from the patient's perspective, uh, in the next 24 months or so, 12 to 24 months, as it relates to information and, and blocking and patient access to records. Yeah, I think you'll see um, a lot more. I mean, I hope you'll see a lot more guidance from the regulatory agencies that are involved here on, you know, answering questions that people still have about the information blocking rules and, and the exceptions and do they apply to this circumstance versus another circumstance. I mean, we really just scratched the surface, the depth of this, um, of this law uh, and the exceptions and sort of getting a full understanding of them. And we'll start to see some enforcement actions, I think. I mean, some of some, this law is very new. It went, it officially went into effect in April, but we still actually don't have um, the penalty, the rules around how the penalties will be issued. And for medical professionals, those penalties are really um, come from in the form of financial disincentives from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And you know, aside from requiring an attestation that you're not information blocking as part of Medicare payment, 
Um, it's not clear what other um, financial levers that agency will use to deal with information blocking violations. And so, you know, I would say the next 12 to 24 months is when you're going to see some of that detail start to roll out greater understanding of the rule, but it doesn't hurt. I mean, I would not wait for that to go into effect before I started to get my, you know, get processes and procedures in place for dealing with requests so that, you know, you're not caught unaware. You've got, you've got a bit of time before the law enforcers are going to start cracking down, but it's dwindling. On that, um, that <laughs> word of, of warning, I want to thank my guest, Devin McGraw, who is the Chief Regulatory Officer for Citizens. Thank you so much for being on Sound Practice. Thank you for uh, the opportunity. My thanks to Devin McGraw for her thoughtful overview of information blocking rules. We will certainly hear much more about this topic in years to come. My thanks also to the American Association for Physician Leadership for making this podcast possible. Please join us next time on Sound Practice. You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org. Had his holy cow, but man and Robin went from Kapow.